been a really interesting week in English rugby as both England captain Owen Farrell and international referee Tom Foley have taken their decision to step away from the international game for the foreseeable future. Joining myself, Nick Kane and Nick Powell today to discuss both the fallout and the causes of these decisions is Premiership record breaker Tom Barndell. Before we kick off this episode of the pod, Christmas is coming up, everyone. For any rugby super fan out there, give them the ultimate Christmas present by gifting them an official hospitality experience at Twickenham with Keith Prowse, principal sales partner to England Rugby Hospitality. They've got a place at the stadium called The Gate, and it is incredible. It's a chop house style restaurant serving some incredible steaks and an all-inclusive bar. But that's not even the best thing, as the premium seats it offers are right on the touchline between the 22s in the East Stand, which in my opinion are the best seats in the stadium. It's an incredible experience and they now only have packages left for the England-Wales match for next year's Guinness Six Nations. So I suggest you get in touch with our friends at Keith Prowse by visiting their website, keithprowse.co.uk forward slash the rugby paper. Welcome back to the Rugby Paper podcast. Um, It's been another two weeks and this time that is planned. So just for our listeners and viewers, we will now be recording fortnightly until the Six Nations. And around then we will get back into the usual sort of weekly schedule. Um, In the time that we've been gone, it's been a very very interesting and potentially groundbreaking week or so uh particularly in the Gallagher Premiership so plenty to talk about and joining myself in the Knicks today is the second highest Premiership try score of all time <laughs> Tom Vandell do you like being introduced like that now no it's awful it's awful it's awful <laughs> uh, how would you <laughs> just, just say one of the Premiership top try scorers second is <laughs> Tough. It still gets me every time. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I did see an interview where you said one player that had always given you an issue and you said Chris Ashton, nothing more. Yeah. <laughs> That's about right. That's not changed either. I actually saw Chris the other day. No, it's, uh, yeah, he's a great player. Was that, the first, was that the first time you've seen him since he broke the record or have you seen him a few times since? I saw him two weeks, two weeks ago, actually. We were sat in um, the Crumbie stand doing some commentary for various different outlets. And uh, yeah, he was there. Little smile. Little twinkle in his eye, just looking at me. <laughs> not deliberate yep. or anything. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so what's um what's life looking like for you nowadays? Are you in you in Oxford? Yeah, so I'm coaching uh Oxford Brooks University. So I basically took about probably three three years. I mean, COVID helped with that. Three years out of the game completely. Just after I think a long time in it, um, and started doing the same thing every single day. It was nice and break. Then you start missing it, and this coaching opportunity came up. I run a sports management company as well, um, so yeah, just doing bits and pieces really at the moment, and, and just enjoying it. Obviously, getting back into commentary as well, um, doing some rugby sort of coaching, online coaching bits and pieces. So yeah, just fully immersed in rugby again after taking a little bit of a some time out with the family and doing some other bits and pieces. That feels very you. Are you just thriving? Mate, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I mean, it was, it was tough during COVID. I think missing yeah. that team environment and and being around people every single day. Um, obviously, when you're in it, it's like Jesus, I need a break. But when you're out of it, you do miss it. And um, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's just good for your mental health just to be in and around that sort of something that you know and something you feel comfortable in. And I definitely am. I'm a lot happier where I am right now and doing lots of bits and pieces and just, but not you know, not having to play on a cold wet weekend that's you know I don't miss that but I just miss the camaraderie of the change room and sort of being in that sort of environment saying that you're not that far removed from playing are you because this time this time a year ago weren't you playing for Oxford Harlequins or are you still doing yeah. that yeah so I uh stupidly agreed to play 
rugby after retiring. I played about, I think I played about 12 games last year and I actually really enjoyed it. I played a bit of, for the, the Vets team as well as the, their first team down there. And it was really, really good. But this year, I just, I think I played one game at the start of the season. Um, and I was like, actually, no, I'm done now. Like, I, I think I am done. Uh, I might dip in and out, just doing some invitational bits and pieces. Played in Will Cliff's testimony, actually, up in Manchester. So bits and pieces like that is fine. But every single week, the body just can't do it. At whatever level, you're still getting hit by big blokes. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, the enjoyment factor is not, as, not there as much as it used to be. So like Johnny Sexton, 38 is the cutoff point. I think so. I yeah, think so. Yeah, okay. I think that's a good age. It's a good age. <laughs> I mean, that's, well, that's 22 years playing. Yeah, uh, not bad. I, yeah. I think I'm done now. <laughs> I'd rather watch my kids just play rugby now. That's fine. I'm absolutely I fine. Say, do, you've got them into it then. How old are they now? Uh, so I've got a 16-year-old who's um, sort of in the Les Tigers Academy. Uh, then I've got a 10-year-old who's just completely rugby mad. And then I've got a little six-year-old who's not quite into rugby. Um, Trying to steer him down the, the golf the golf route, I think. It's a lot more enjoyable, I think. <laughs> and more money. <laughs> so... are, they... <laughs> are, they, are they wingers like you? Yes, my eldest is a winger. Um uh, my middle one, not quite sure yet. He's at the age where they can play everywhere they want, but he's uh, built a little bit differently. He's a bit bigger. Uh, I'm trying to keep him out the front row, but it's probably looking that way. Yeah. Yeah. If you're big, they just see it. Well, no one wants to play there. So it's, it's no. a hard game at that age, isn't it? No, awesome stuff. And you said you're obviously into coaching Ox Oxford Brook sports management. What's yeah. the sort of end goal there? Is this a, you know, 30 year project for you where you see yourself being there? Oh, 30 years, it sounds like a long time. but um, Not 30 years at Brooks, but 30 years in coaching. Yeah. I mean, with the Brooks stuff, it's season by season at the moment. It's it's nice to be part of a team environment and passing on my knowledge to like younger players who have got ambitions of, obviously, so, you know, some just want to do rugby in university and then go off and do their, you know, their choice, their choice of career. Others have ambition to go and play at a higher level. And it's just nice just to work with a group of lads that, you know, playing rugby because they really enjoy it and they and they want to be part of something. Um, we've actually got a big game today um, against Loughborough University. So, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying that coaching aspect. That's purely more of a passion project than anything. The sports management company is the nine to five, pretty much. Um, and that's just looking after players who are playing you know, at the top of the game um, and just sort of trying to navigate through this crazy time at the moment because rugby is it's, 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 it's brutal. If you're a player right now, and you obviously three clubs went went bust last year. Um, MLR teams at the moment they're they they're going they're going out of business. It is it's it's a difficult landscape for these players at the moment. So that being there as a bit of a mentor, passing on my knowledge as best as I can, and helping them find opportunities to work is yeah that is good, and I'm enjoying that. Yeah, that's a very good outlook on a like you say slightly bleak situation. Um, yeah, let's use that as sort of a loose funnel into what we're going to talk about today, and the the main topic of conversation is to do with two individuals basically Owen Farrell and Tom Foley um for the sake of our discussion I'm going to conflate the two obviously any cases like this they're very individual and they're very particular and they're very nuanced but obviously both Farrell and Foley have made decisions to step away from the international game for the foreseeable future Farrell's obviously missing the Six Nations Tom Foley hasn't given a return date some people are saying he's retired we don't really know um but the reasons cited are very, very similar. And that is the public scrutiny, the online treatment, the abuse. Um, and that obviously has been a large, large contributing factor. Tom, I'll bring you in first of all. Um, 
one's a player, one's a referee. Obviously, you can give your, you know, I, I don't think you've ever been a referee at any point in your in, in your life or career. And I, I, well, I'd imagine you probably wouldn't want to. Um, but what do you make of it all? I guess obviously you'd speak predominantly on the Farrell thing. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult situation because as a rugby player, um, you're seen as, I suppose, part of the entertainment industry. Therefore, with social media and the way that these... It's been broken down so players and fans can now interact a lot more. So there seems to be, a, you know, for certain people, it gives them the right to criticise, um, but not just criticise about the play, but criticise about the person, their personality. They go after families sometimes. So, you know, I've seen messages. They, they can be brutal. And what fans or people that watch the game forget, these players are human beings as well. They do have lives outside the rugby pitch. The person you see on the rugby pitch is a caricature or a blown up version of what that person probably is in real life. Because that's the way you have to be. You have to wear this, this mask as a rugby player. Um, and you've got this, you have to create a sort of almost like a persona for yourself. You, you know, it's not, it's not real life. Social media is really good because it has, it's allowed rugby to step into the modern day and become very interactive with fans, you know, like football is in this country and players do take a lot of stick from it. Um, and obviously Owen Farrell being the, the, the person he is, England captain, he does come under a lot of stick. And there's positives and negatives, yes, but the negatives, especially pre-World Cup, even during the World Cup, when he's being booed by fans, he's getting a lot of abuse online. It's just, you know, it takes its toll. And obviously he's made the decision to step away um, from, the, from international rugby, which is unbelievable. Our England captain is stepping away from international rugby. That should never happen. Um, and he's had to do that for his own mental health, but also for his family's mental health. Um, and I think that's the big thing. I think if it was just him, he could deal with it. He's a strong person. But when he's seeing his family suffering because of it, his children, then it becomes unacceptable. Okay, you know, as sort of, well, we'll go with the most seasoned um, rugby man of all of us. Over over the years, have you seen any sort of player of this profile take such a decision? The only recent one I can think of is Michael Hooper. And even then, obviously, well, I wasn't in Australia, so but it didn't seem like the narrative was quite so... This is step away from all the scrutiny, all the social media, but I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, look, I think that people have made that decision in the past. People, when it comes, I think when it comes to retirement um, with a lot of players, I do think that the, you know, being in the limelight for a long time probably has, uh, has an impact in that decision and has had for many years. You know, I mean, look, a guy like Carling got probably more uh, media attention than uh, you, you know than Farrell has, you know Farrell's been relatively under the radar. I think the thing that has changed is social media. Mm. I think the social media game has you know totally shifted things uh, on its axis, and the sort of abuse that they're getting, which is you know which is targeted at family and so on. Everybody's saying that this is that this is wrong. The legislators, i.e., government have got to put in the legislation to make sure that these people are, um, you, you know, that they're investigated and if need be, that they're prosecuted. And that will change the, um, or, you know, the social media insists that people put their names to their opinions. You know, we as journalists are accountable. Whatever we write, our bylines are on it. You know, so I, I, I took issue with Mark McCall saying that the narrative around uh, Owen Farrell had started in the mainstream media. 
I don't agree with that. You know, I mean, if an England captain is booed in a stadium, if it's not reported, the reporter is not doing his job. You know, I mean, it's a it's something that happens. You you know, who, what, when, where, why. So you report it. And um, so I do think, and, and it's interesting, you know, he, I, I just sort of caught a little bit of um, Owen Farrell doing some European Cup promotion. Uh, I think it probably uh, yesterday. And he seems much more relaxed uh, having made this decision than uh, before. And we've got to remember, he's been in the limelight for, you know, over a decade now. He's played for England, I think, for uh, 11 years. And the last four of those years have been really, you know, it's been a prolonged slump. And there has been public backlash as a as a consequence of that. I also think that an element in it, and you got it with Steve Borthwick when he was the England captain, is that communication is important. And I think that honesty about performance is important as well. And um, because people don't like, you know, they don't, I guess, in a sense, they don't like to be spun. And uh, so these things are are significant. So I think that there are are faults probably on all sides, but um, I don't necessarily, I mean, you know, mental health is such a pejorative issue that nobody can take it lightly. Nobody can, you know, can can say, and people feel stress in different ways. You know, I mean, it's it's not a one size fits all thing at all. So, yeah, those are my uh, initial thoughts on it anyway. So before we really get into the nitty gritty of it, let's just cover the sort of um, news element of it. Uh, Nick Powell, I'll bring you in just to speak about Tom Foley's decision a little bit, just so we have sort of all the facts laid out, what has happened, and then we'll go into the parameters, like Nick says, the dif- the distinction between mainstream and social media and things like that. Well, yeah, so Tom Foley, uh, he commented specifically about the abuse that he got, uh, I think, two weeks ago. And that was followed up by a decision uh, to step back from refereeing international games about three or four days after Owen Farrell made his decision at the start of last week. So, yeah, um, that was a that was a particular surprise for me. Um, Obviously, as you say, we'll come back and discuss it more broadly but one of the most concerning things about that is if the you know one of the one of the things that rugby can hold on to consistently as a positive particularly in the international game is high quality officiating and if officials are starting to feel that they are unable to cope with social media abuse then that's a real concern because then we could create the same problem that english football has where basically the referees are not the most talented, they're the most confident. They're the people who are best able to deal with that kind of abuse. Um, and that does not always lead to top officiating. So, so yeah, that 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 came, as I say, it came after um, Foley had had indicated that he had received a an inor- you know an extreme amount of abuse. Um, for TMO decisions that he made during the final, which which was also really sad to see because clearly you know it meant a lot to him to be in that in that final and uh, for that to be so heavily tarnished um, was quite shocking to read about. Mm. 
There's a, you, you know, I mean, one issue that I don't think can be glossed over in that is that referees in a way or the officiating group are being hung out to dry in some ways. Um, you know, if you look at the bunker review system and how it was bounced into the World Cup on virtually no, you, you know, no sort of betting in process, if they're, they're very exposed. You know, I mean, New Zealand fans were um, apoplectic about, uh, you know, the amount of interference they considered there to be in the referee, actually in Wayne Barnes's position, not through any fault of Barnes, but because the, there were so many TMO referrals in it. Um, so it's a difficult, it, it, it's, it, I think that world rugby, you know, again, there's no excuse at all for the sort of, you know, the level of vitriol and the idea that you then start targeting somebody's family. You know, that's it's it's just it beggars belief almost that there are people out there who are prepared to do that. This is a sport and it's always been conducted as a sport, whether it's professional or amateur. And to sort of raise the stakes in the way in which some people do is pathetic. Um, but having said that, world rugby has not done referees a whole lot of favours. You know, I mean, Wayne Barnes has also come out and obviously he and his wife have been subjected to this uh, level of abuse as well. So, yeah, as long as it, it as long as it goes unprosecuted, it will probably continue. You know, I mean, there are no signs over, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's absolutely recent. You know, this has been going on pro for probably a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, until there is prosecution of people for social media abuse of this sort, it will continue. I think it was very unfortunate that the fact that World Rugby privately admitted the mistake behind the Aaron Smith try in the World Cup final, that information became public. I because obviously that was Tom Foley. He was, you know, involved in that decision. And it, I, it, I, it's, I, it's, I, the, it's the laws it's the laws sort of biting themselves, you know. I mean the reality was, I, I don't know, there's a natural justice in rugby and there's, you know, and there are, are, are laws, sometimes very pedantic. If you went back through the sequence, it's apparently after two, um, you know, two phases of play, you can't call it back. I thought it was advisory. I don't know whether it is or not. But the try led directly from a knock-on. There were four or five phases, and so there was a direct line through to the try being scored. So for me, it got chalked off. Okay. The next try that was scored about two or three minutes later, when they eventually got an aerial camera, a drone camera view, it was clear that the, that the pass, the scoring pass was forward. Didn't get called up. Yeah, I think New Zealand um, should be pretty happy with their with their one try there. Absolutely. I mean, to, to be moaning, yeah. to be moaning about uh, a, a, there's something as pedantic as that where there was clearly a knock on. We all, everyone in the everyone who sat around the pub near where I was said it. Everyone was like, "Oh, knock on! They're going to call it back. They're going to call it back." And as you say, I think I thought it was advisory as well. Clearly, that was the mindset that Tom Foley had. No New Zealand fan should be abusing Tom Foley for having for for them scoring one try. They should be looking at the misconversion and penalty as the as the clear causes of why they lost the game, but obviously not. 
then abusing Geordie Barrett as well over that. Obviously, it's, well, it's slightly conjecture that the abuse Tom Foley has been receiving is from New Zealand fans, but it's obviously, you know, somewhat a decent assumption. Um, Tom, you mentioned, obviously, 22-year rugby career. I think back to 22 years ago, no Facebook, no Twitter, definitely no Instagram. How, obviously, someone like Carl Sinclair has come out and spoken, the support players get or the training players get to handle that sort of thing isn't good enough. How did it change from the early inception of those social media domains where maybe the large-scale impact they would have on a player's mind probably hadn't been quantified? And then towards the last stage of your career where it probably was starting to do so, and where was it clear that... Was there any sort of training or anything like that? Yeah, so... From from academy, you'd have so you'd have um, media training. So when you go and do your press interviews, but there was only towards the last couple of years where we ever have social media training, and it was basically keep everything very neutral. Don't criticize, especially referees. We were re- criticizing referees was a was a big one. Never ever come out and criticize referees. Um, but in terms of interaction, it was always seen as a very positive thing. Like interact with fans, have that you know, general chat with the fans. Some players even taking personal businesses on, you know, online and, and using it. So there is so many positives to social media. And it's only really, probably since I've retired, that fans, these keyboard warriors, we, we call them, they seem to sit there, they pass criticism, but then it goes beyond cr- criticising. Because rugby players can take criticism. We get it every single day from the coach. You know, you have a bad game at the weekend. Monday morning, you know you're in for an absolute spanking from the coach because you've had a bad game. So you can take criticism or constructive criticism is when it starts becoming personal um i personally haven't experienced it um i was lucky to escape that generation of of social media where fans can i'm sure i would have got plenty but um there wasn't ever any real training for it um i'm and i'm not aware if there's much now either and it's such a hard thing to 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 prepare boys for because you know you just don't know what you're going to get and people are brutal like they are brutal and they have that protection of hiding behind a keyboard they don't reveal their name they have they don't even put a picture up on their account you know it's coming um and it's the same sort of the same sort of format every single time so it is it's such a difficult one but there isn't much protection there for players and there isn't much training that i'm aware of at the moment it fascinates me that you said that obviously the main advice you receive is to is the way you act rather than where you tolerate or handle the actions of others and i do want to pick you up on that First of all, there's a slight irony there in a week where Erling Haaland has come out on Twitter and said, what the fuck, in response in response to a refereeing decision at the weekend. So he clearly didn't get the memo. Maybe football players aren't getting the same treatment as rugby players. I don't know. Um, but that means that obviously it's more about action rather than reaction. And so is that maybe a shortcoming in your eyes of where the, where the training should be directed? Is yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's a good point because... Like I said, the only thing that was ever sort of made clear to us was don't criticise referees. And when players have criticised referees, we've seen it over the last couple of seasons. They've either been fined by Prem Rugby or the RFU. It's a it's a massive it's a massive thing. You can never they say yeah have an opinion, but don't have an opinion. Like you can never ever question decisions, um, which I think is a good thing in 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 our sport. We don't get the same. You know, in football, you get players huddling around referees trying to get them to reverse a decision. Once the decision's made. It's made, and, and rugby players tend to accept that. But it is there has to be more training on 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 how to deal with deal with things rather than you as a, as an individual how you react. It's just 
yeah, then and that needs to change quickly because obviously with with the Farrell stuff and the Foley stuff that's going on, obviously Wayne Barnes a couple of years ago as well, you know, he was hinting at retiring back then. Like it's becoming a big problem when big people, when big players and big personalities in our sport are having to step away from it. You know, it should really send alarm bells around the game. Do we know if Haaland has been fined just out of interest? No, but I mean, City City generally are in a, a lot of trouble for what happened on Sunday. Yeah, um, that's and, it should be. And but... obviously, the, the you know recent example in rugby comes to mind of uh, of Jack Noel. Yeah, uh, who <laughs> I mean, that was like he was a he was he was not even he didn't even directly mention a specific incident, and it wasn't even as clear as the Haaland one. Um, it was like or, or like as subtle, should I say? He was alluding to a decision that had been made. Yeah. In a game, and he was fined, fined quite badly for it. So it was ten ten thousand yeah. pound fine, and it was literally, yeah ten thousand. Yeah, it was a, Which, it, it wasn't even a, a direct comment. You're right. It was just, yeah, it, and I felt that it was, was, it was alluding, and it, and there was a lot of confusion around that decision as well. You know, not it was not a bad maybe, decision. It was it yeah. was actually a bad decision. I I was actually in full support of Jack on that, um, but it was ridiculous. But it set a precedent, and, and players, you know, they don't, they know, they are respectful to the referee. Um, you know, there's only a few players that ever say anything against what a referee did, or they hint at it. But you know, and just, but I suppose you have to set a precedent, and it, and it has, and it's worked in the game. But you know, there has to be the same consequences to fans who want to make comments and be send death threats to players and referees. Tom, do you do you think that you know is always the the simplest solution that's always trotted out? And obviously, it means that you 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 might miss out on the benefits of social media. But is it not? Is is the best advice not just to turn the turn it off? You know, don't don't engage. Or is that just impractical? I I personally think it's impractical. I think because social media plays such a huge part in marketing, both for the teams and for the individual player. Now, I mean, everybody's on social media. From you know, even my I mean seven-year-old, six-year-old is on social media. It's ridiculous that everyone is on it. And it's the way, I mean, some clubs do it really well. I mean, Bristol in the Premiership are a prime example of how well they use social media to generate fan sort of interaction and, you know, sell their tickets and everything. And it is a big part of, and they do encourage players to do that and repost tweets and repost Instagram posts and all that. It's almost impossible to stay away from it. And you and you look at your timeline, you see the comments. If you had a good game, then great. It's nice to look at the nice comments. If you had a bad game, then obviously you get criticised. You've got to take that. But it's the it's the stuff which is just completely out of order, which need, it can't be tolerated. But to stay off it, I mean, I see here, I miss it. All she does is scroll through every single day. Everybody's the same. Everyone's on it all the time because it's hard not to be uh, mm. because it's such a big part of, you know, the, the, the business world, sport, and obviously your life now. It's crazy. Mm. And also professional rugby players. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say professional rugby players don't have the option to just hire someone for, you know, on 50 grand a year to deal with all their social media needs in a positive way and then provide them basically with a with a platform where they're not going to get abused. So, you know, it's it's in, in the way that I, I think a lot of footballers can. So, you know, you're you're kind of like a public figure, not to the same extent as, as a footballer, but you're a public figure who's out there and you need to reap the benefits. As you say... Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Bristol, loads of clubs now, probably most of the clubs in the Premiership have got have got really creative and and you know uh, 
sort of clever ways of interact of using social media, which um, are massively important, especially in the times where you where you can only sell nine uh, regular season home game tickets as well, or nine nine rounds. I guess the proof of this is, you know, I mean, presumably there are models in the states in particular that show that it works, but. Mm. If you look at it from a premiership point of view, and I know it's early days, the gates are falling. Mm. So, you know, there's there, there, are, there are disconnects all around. And what you say about actually employing people to uh, manage it uh, on behalf of players so that they're not just, you know, s- sort of straight on interface is probably a really good idea. Yeah. But that's going to cost money. And at the moment, there ain't a lot of it sloshing around. No, so that, that's, certainly not spare spare cash to throw at something like that. So you that's know, part, uh, part of the part of part of the problem. But you know, that's another. It's another story in some ways. Well, well I, I think you're, I think you're right, though. I think there is going to have to. It's going to have to happen, happen sooner rather than later. Clubs are going to have to employ a specific social media manager to do that because mm-hmm. the game. You know, it is getting, especially in the back of the World Cup, it should, the numbers should start increasing. Obviously, rugby's been in a bit of a hole for the last couple of seasons, a uh, couple of years. But they are, they're going to have to start, if they want to start using social media and they want to protect the players, the only way to do that is to employ someone specifically for social media and, and managing the players' accounts. I think that, well, no, I fully agree with part, that. Of, part, of, part of the issue is there are so many uncontrollables, right? You mm. can't control what you see what you don't see really because it's an inevitability you can't control what people say or what people don't say obviously your performances on the pitch maybe slightly but there's obviously you know everyone has dips in form everyone has bad games that's inevitable um i was listening to an interview with adam driver of all people um who was promoting he's playing enzo ferrari in a ferrari film coming out and he was promoting that and he was asked by the interviewer has your appearance changed the changed your career or affected your career suggest, implying that he doesn't look like a typical film star or whatever and he spent mm-hmm. you know, that led into this social media reaction he said that if you believe the good you have to believe the bad and so his response is just total apathy to everything and i don't know tom i wonder what you thought about i found it a really interesting response because well us being journalists me being a podca- podcast host we see comments on youtube and there are many good comments, many bad comments about, you know, stupid questions I've asked or, you know, stupid things Kano has said or whatever. And it's like, okay, sometimes there's great stuff and I could be like, oh, great. But then the bad stuff. Would Mostly bad comments. Don't really <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, I, did, you I, just say, did you just say stupid things that I've said? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. That was the, it's like, the it's like when I write an article for a rugby paper. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I've seen the comments underneath and I just go, <laughs> Just I'm, I'm, you know, like with a fine tooth comb, trying to find yeah, some of the positives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Tom. I'm glad I'm oblivious to it. <laughs> but yeah, is staying you know, well away, Tom. It is total apathy to both the good and the bad. The sort of ideal outcome here, not that that's possible, because we're not apathetic as individuals, and no one would want to be. But with that sort of a thing, obviously, someone like Adam Driver, he's a, he he probably develops it to a point because he's just that exposed. You, and you have to be. I mean, when I first started out and, you know, I made my, my first couple of years at Leicester Tigers, I used to love reading, like, good articles. Like, oh, yeah, you know, how, how well I played and stuff. Like that. And it is. It's great for your ego. And then you start getting a couple of, well, you know, 
I've had an absolute stinker and it completely knocks you for six. You know, you, you feel like crap. Um, but as you get older, you just stop reading everything. You just don't even, you know, the only people that you need to be accountable to is your teammates and your coach. And you know if you had a good or a bad game, you don't need to read about it. But that just comes with experience. Um, and for me, early on in my career, I read everything, good or bad, and feel really great about myself or feel really bad. And as I went, oh, yeah, and then you just ignore it and you don't care. Like, at the end of the day, it's one person's opinion. Um, as long as you're getting picked every single week and you, and you feel like you're performing, your coach is telling you're doing well, that should all, that's all that matters. But it does. It comes from that's, that's learning and that's just maturing. And, you know, actually, I don't care. I'm doing something I love. I'm doing something I enjoy. I'm playing rugby week in, week out. And that's all that matters. But that happens later on in your career. And it's the same today. These youngsters, they'll read everything. They'll get their newspaper clippings cut out. They'll go into their mum and dad the weekend and they'll talk about it. Like, as soon as I leave the pitch, that's me done. I would not I would not even think about it. That came at the latter part of my career. I think that's really interesting too, because obviously the way you speak about it is the the beginning narrative, and you could take any sort of rising star, you know, Maru Itoje or Owen Farrell back when he was starting out, you're touted as the next big thing or, you know, you've a young up-and-comer with a ton of potential and stuff. And that's when all the positive stuff happens, when there's yeah. zero expectation. Honestly, our podcast was exactly the same. Like, obviously, you know, when we started out, people were like, oh, my God, how are we just discovering this? This is great. And then, obviously, you get to a certain level. There's a certain expectation and a certain exposure as well. And once that starts to happen, it's the negativity increases. You're not meeting that expectation. You're not living up to your potential or whatever. And yeah. is that just the way, the inevitable way, the narrative that get, the narrative yeah. goes? I think that's just life. Like when you start off, start off and it's exciting, it's all new and you just burst onto the scene, then yeah, everybody wants to know you. Everybody wants to talk, speak, speak good things about you. If you make a mistake, it's not a big deal because, you know, he's young, he's got, you know, it's just all about potential. But then when you don't start meeting them, especially later on, then that's when the criticism starts. Um, and I think that's how it is in life in general. It's just, and you've just got to be, be a bit thick-skinned and, and hard-nosed and just be like, oh, I don't care. Like, you've just got to get to a point where you don't care because otherwise it affects you so much. You go on the pitch, you're worried about that mistake you're going to make and you're not thinking positively at all. Um, but that comes down to, and that's the responsibility of the clubs as well, to make sure that, you know, these you know mental skills coaches come in and help players to get out of that negative cycle. Um, you get this protected by a social media manager who can come and help them. They The club need to put these tools in now. It's a professional game. Therefore, you've got to protect the player and give them the tools to deal with the, the positives and the negatives. Because the positives can have a negative effect as well. You start thinking you're too good. You become mm. arrogant. Teammates then don't like you because you're walking around like you're the big I am. So you have to get the balance right. And I think the only way to do it is just go, I don't care, positive or negative. I'm held accountable by my coaches, my teammates and my family. And if they think I'm doing well, then that's all that matters. I mean, it's easy for me to sit back in as a retired player because I've been through that journey. I've done the the positives and being an arrogant little sod. And I've had the negatives as well. I'm feeling crap. So yeah, it is a journey, but the clubs need to step up or RFU or Prem Rugby need to step up and give these players the tools to manage it. You say that it's easy to say as a retired player, but obviously it's so useful having that insight of, you know, here we've done it. And, you know, if that early narrative that you had as a player, we had as a podcast had come true, you know, you would have been a, well, I guess 150 cap England winger at some point with 250 tries and we'd be the biggest podcast in the world. And 
you need to be sort of realistic. Nick, you're smirking at that, right? Maybe not the biggest. Well, that's not, the biggest I'm, not smirking. I'm not smirking. I, no, I, no, Powell was smirking. Powell was smirking. Okay. Right. I think <laughs> it's about, it. you know, it, fundamental here is about self-belief. And it's something that all players and, you know, in anything that you do in life, you you have to have enough of it to believe that what you got there you, you know what got you there is enough to keep you there and i you know everybody does go through you know dips in careers of all sorts you know that that happens you are appraised and you are criticized on a, on a, you know on on a c- consistent basis in working life that's the way you know that's the way the cookie crumbles and i think it's about resilience and if you can teach resilience and i think you probably can that's you know the most important aspect of this is to recognize and tom's right you know it is very often it is just one person's opinion but that person's opinion in in a democracy in a, in 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 a world in which we value freedom of speech is an important thing but people need to know and have the perspective to be able to say well that's their view and that doesn't have to be my view of myself yeah yeah and i i also think i think you know it's it's there's definitely lessons that can be taken from it but i also don't think that it's necessarily something we should worry worry about specifically too much because the unique challenges that owen farrell has faced in the last four years are greater i think than than most players would ever have to go through during that that kind of time frame so um you know taking out all the tackles which you know is a whole process of being banned that you have to come back from and then you know people obviously will will comment and in some cases very robustly about that kind of that kind of incident but then you've got leading an england team in i don't know it must have been what six or seven camps where they were where they were in covid-19 bubbles and he would he was the captain for every single one of those coming under a barrage of criticism for the style of rugby they were playing uh, Saracen's salary cap um, debacle, which saw his his club get relegated, and huge amount of abuse come from from the rugby public against that club that he's played for so proudly for his entire career. Um, you know, then got a nasty injury, looked like Marcus Smith had replaced him in the pecking order. His national team coach, who he's been alongside, gets sacked. Um, Six Nations starts on a bad note in 2023, off the back of another one of those tackle incidents. And then this this lead up to the World Cup, where he's been the captain, in and out the team because of those bands of a of a team that has that has well England have never been so strongly criticised, you know, with with such high expectations not being matched on the field in the lead up to a tournament. So um, even you know even Carl Sinclair the other day was saying that he he's considering taking a step back because because of the 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 weight of the last three months. So I think that's something that cannot be forgotten when looking at Owen Farrell. And it's one of the reasons why I wasn't overly surprised when I saw the news. I think a lot of people were, but I wasn't overly surprised nor worried because I think that he has had to endure so much that it's just, when you when you add it all together in the last four years, it's completely unique. And And although we should learn lessons from this, we also shouldn't, shouldn't overreact um to to him doing what he's doing and he's fully entitled to to take his break i think he's earned it 
yeah i think that's that's really well put um okay now i want to bring in your column here because you've already alluded to it but you mentioned that there was a very clear distinction between mainstream media and social media that you wanted to make where mark mccall maybe didn't make it so much now in so i thought your column was fascinating and in some ways you know i do agree with it in that the narrative around Farrell in particular was not as negative in the mainstream media as it was on social media, nor was it as wholesale. Nice cat, Tom. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really young. Is that a, a little kitten? Yes, yes. He turned up two weeks ago. My missus uh, oh. went back home. I'm allergic to cats as well, which is fantastic. Oh, that's good. Yeah. oh nice. Yeah. Right. But you know, he's cute. He's cute. <laughs> <laughs> they, they always make a beeline for people who are allergic to them, Tom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you start sneezing, um, I might, <laughs> yeah. I, I might mute you. So don't yeah, be too. This podcast about to get really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And then I saw a cat. I, was like, oh, <laughs> I mean, to speak about mental health. Get a cat. That will, that will. Yeah, won't it? Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, I've completely lost where I am now. I've got distracted by the cat. Um, Anyway, I, yes, I agree with that. The mainstream media narrative hasn't been as extreme as that cat is so distracting, as extreme as wholesale and just as pointed as the social media reaction. But my the area which I I felt wasn't necessarily addressed was the domino effect the mainstream media can have. And if you take the example of the next big thing narrative, that generates a bunch of discourse, be it on comments um on articles or on youtube or on instagram posts of social media you know of social media it gets people thinking yeah. a certain way and that's the domino effect i'm talking about is when the ravi paper podcast doesn't become the biggest podcast in the uk then the narrative flips and that's where the narrative in the mainstream media flips but obviously that has a knock-on effect and you say there's accountability of course there is our names are there but it's almost in inevitable and innate to mainstream media that it generates the direction of social media discussion. So a negative na narrative that shapes, well, shape it like a triangle, generates a whole cascade of negativity that can just spiral. And in this case has, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think that there is any way that, I, I mean, debate, controversy, these are things that are, you know, you go into a pub, you listen to people talking about any sport. There are always flashpoints. There are always individuals. There are always moments in, in, in sport that people, you know, that people are drawn to, that people want to discuss, that people want to, you know, get opinion on um, and want to test their own opinions on. Um, you can't eliminate debate. And, you know, and I think any attempt to do so is you know is is the sort of beginning of a very down you, you know uh, big downturn in society. Um, I, I just I, I go back to the fact that there is a difference between what's happening in mainstream media, and it may promote you know ideas that then become distorted massively when it gets to the social media side of things, and people st begin to start thinking that they can abuse people's families. You know, I mean, that's, that, there's just a massive quantum leap between the two. And as I say, one needs to be prosecuted, and the other has got regulations that you know that that control it to a degree, and legislation that controls it. Because if you libel somebody, you'll get taken to court. You know, so. I, you know, I just think that the two things I don't, I'm, I, I don't believe in this cascade effect. I think that there's a line in the sand 
between debate and between abuse. And, you know, that's what needs to be recognized and 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 that line clearly drawn by society. Um, and I don't think there was a gratuitous pile on from the um, from the media against Owen Farrell. I think there was a there were some flashpoints like the red card and the debate around uh, should he take the number 10 shirt off George Ford. But that was, again, if you go through all the old content across, the, there's never a point where someone's just, you know, where, where someone's writing an editorial just taking the mickey out of Owen Farrell for the sake of it. I don't think anyone ever got into that into that realm. All of them were debates about specific issues, and there were uh, sort of moments of 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 peace for Owen Farrell where he wasn't the main story. It wasn't always about him. You know, there was there was one particular uh, story from a social uh, from a certain should I say a certain podcast, um, not ours, uh, about some bust up with Henry Arundel, which I think uh, we can. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw the person I'm not going to name the person who came up with that that uh or maybe didn't come up with that story um for for don't want to slander yeah, them but, um, <laughs> but yeah so that was a bit weird and obviously there was some some nasty stuff on social media but I don't think there was in the written press I would say that but I don't think there was a gratuitous pile on of abuse towards Owen Farrell I think everyone no, and, and you've got to have positives and negatives. You know, sport, like I said before, it's entertainment. And people like to read about the the negative stuff and the positive stuff. And you have to have that debate. Like That's what makes sport watchable. That's why people come and sit in the stadiums and, and watch it. Because you want to see the flashpoints. You want to see the bad stuff. You want to see the good stuff. If it was all good and all, all fluffy and nice, then no one would be interested. It'd be boring. Mm. And I, I, I think the media play a huge part in, in creating... You know, some people, fans come to the games, and and that's what you want. That's what rugby's about. Like you need that. And like like Nick said, it's got to be, but there has to be a line. You you know, criticize the playing performance, criticize you know certain decisions or certain aspects of the game, but don't go after family members. Don't go. Don't make it personal. Make it about the rugby. And I enjoy the fact that the press can write some negative stuff sometimes about the rugby and the and the personalities on the pitch. But that's that's part and parcel of being. In the, in the public eye and being a sportsman. But like you said, there has to be a way to control the other stuff that's now affecting people and, and families. And I think that's it. It's, it's, it's that simple. And I, uh, it, it does seem a lot of, um, you know, the profile uh, does seem, I mean, Michael Hooper, you know, his standing down with Australia. Now we've got Owen Farrell doing the same with England. It does seem, the captaincy does seem to be a very, very much of a focus. Um, and I, 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 I sort of think that, um, you know, the people who are closest to captains or should be of national teams are national coaches. So what, where's the detection going on of, how, you know, the pressure barometer, if you like, on an individual? Um, you know, from the coach's point of view, Eddie Jones, you know, prior to, uh, prior to Steve Borthwick. I mean... Everybody here has a responsibility. And I wouldn't absolve coaches from that, including Mark McCall. You know, so, you know, we have a responsibility as reporters not to get involved in personal invective and so on and so forth. They have a responsibility to look after players. 
And sometimes, you know, I mean, everybody needs to look at themselves to a degree. Yeah, I think that I personally, I think that includes the mainstream media. And I, I, I do think the cascade effect is very much a thing. You and I can disagree on that. And that's absolutely fine, obviously. But I also wonder one thing that hasn't been mentioned is the Danny Cipriani mafia comments. And I just wonder whether we say that there wasn't a downturn on Owen Farrell as a person. I just wondered the, you know, not really asking anything about it, but that obviously seems a little bit personal. And what category does that fall under? Obviously, that's a high-profile individual that is going to generate discussion in the mainstream media through something that he says. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, it's again, it's a, it's it's an opinion from the inside. And, you know, and it's a, a pretty pointed one. And it is always going to set it, you know, something like that is going to set a hair running. You know, I mean, people could see from body language on the 2018 tour when Cipriani was part of that tour, there were points where, you know, certainly it looked as if Owen wasn't, um, you know, they weren't on the same page. Let's put it that way. You also and, can't and just Cipriani's, be Cipriani's say again, sorry. I was just going to say, you can't be expected to ignore that. If, if you know, whether it's true or not, if, if an ex-player comes out and says something of that sort of makes that kind of accusation, you can't just sort of let it go and go, oh, well, Danny Cipriani being Danny Cipriani kind of thing. <laughs> that's <laughs> the, that's the to tough small. one. That's the tough one, isn't it? Like, if it was another player, would it be taken more seriously? Now, because it's Danny, and Danny's look, Danny's very good at the media with media. He has been since he was eighteen years old, and I, I love Danny to pieces. You also got to remember Danny was trying to sell his book as well at the time. So, you know, <laughs> yes, there is there is aspects of it that you need to look into, and but it's a tough one, especially when it's Danny. And you know, I think Danny's had a, a rough ride at certain points. I don't think he's done himself any, done himself any favors as well over his career. Um, but look, it, it is it is a tough one when, it, when it's coming from inside the camp as well, and he's obviously been a player, he's been part of that over the years. Yeah, the, the, there's gonna there is definitely issues there, but it, it's such a tough one. It is such a tough one. Players start making comments on on what's going on in camp because that's pretty much like an unwritten rule. What happens in camp stays in camp. But like, so yeah, it's I can't really make too much comment on it because it's Danny and. I don't want to say anything against Danny, but it's top, top. Uh, that's it's, right. un, it's an unwritten rule until people and, and you pointed it out until people have books to publish, yeah. and yeah. that's when the rule gets unwritten, and not just with Danny Cipriani. But no, no, right, exactly. Very often across the board. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. But look, it's you know, it's it's that's what fans want. Like fans want to know what's going on inside the camp, and it and it does. It sells stories. It's 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 interesting to read, but yeah. I think you have to take it as what it is, and you know, we, you, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. There's never going to be an investigation about the the England mafia or anything like that. Um, but it's just you know, it's just interesting to read now and again, isn't it? It's interesting that you said that. Obviously, he was trying to sell his book at the time, and he was. And I, you know, again, no one will ever know whether book sales were impacted by that comment or not. But obviously, the most the greatest amount of scrutiny around that time with Danny Cipriani's book was to do with that comment. And that sort of brings me into my sort of final point around this, and then we probably should move on. But people have said that the solution is fewer interviews, fewer intrusions, fewer uh, less public exposure, fewer 
stories, less monetization, etc. It's not really an option. Like, I don't really see that as being, you know, possible. But the issue is, is obviously social media is more and more aggressive. It's more and more political. It's more and more targeted. And if someone's selling a story, a book, a post, a podcast or whatever, it's more and more clickbaity. Find out more about England's mafia is much more, let's go and buy this book, than the life of Danny Cipriani, as interesting as the life of Danny Cipriani is. Oh, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'm sure. I'll I'll buy that book. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, okay. Well, maybe Danny is a bad example. (laughs) But you know what I mean. So I think rather what it has to be is what's been really interesting to see about Farrell is since he's come out and said all this, the whole narrative has changed around him. And all of a sudden, and this is conjecture on my part, but the people who were jumping down his throat after the red card or after the missed shot clock or after the mafia or whatever, have now come out and started defending him. And I think maybe then there, and I want to know what you guys think, think here, um, Nick Powell's just dropped off the call. So, well, I Tom, I'll, I'll ask you, if the solution is actually rugby just has to be a more open space where if Farrell had said something like that after the red card and said, right, guys, I'm, you know, not right guys, but had actually said mm. It's actually weighing on me. He's obviously very professional and not indifferent with the media, but he he obviously doesn't engage massively, and it you know isn't particularly human with the media. And by that, I he just he just isn't very open with them. If he had been, and maybe if he felt like he could have been, then obviously this whole cascade effect from the players' point of view now could have been avoided. I don't think so. I think look the way that Farrell, you know, he's very well. He's you know he's very media trained in terms of you see the interviews after the game. It's you know it's it's you could pretty much predict what's going to be said, and that's the way he wants to you know do his interviews, do his media, you know, and that's the way he's been trained to do that, and that's absolutely fine. I do think that the way that rugby has, I think players are more open now. The media they're doing a lot more fun stuff and making a lot more interactive with fans. I think that is important to grow the game. I think it is. I think social media. The press, I think, plays a huge part in the growth of the game. Um, and especially now where you see the majority of you know kids on their phones, you have to make rugby accessible for everybody. But to do that, rugby can't just go, right, we're going to do that. They're going to have to put the, the, the right restrictions, the right personnel in place to help manage that. And I think this goes back to the points you made earlier on. If they want to go on social media, they want to market their clubs, they want to market the players, players want to market themselves, which they are you know, fully within their right to do, then it has to be done in the correct way it can't just be a free-for-all and then then be exposed to criticism and then put them then then saying the wrong thing as well and it all just ended up in the absolute chaos but there has to be a switch in how boys are now trained or players are now trained with the media before it's all very black and white it can't be like that anymore because social media has now taken down all them barriers and all them boundaries and made it like this it is a, a literally a free-for-all so boys now need to i say boys sorry professional sportsmen now need to be trained in a way like you can be more open, but this is how you're going to do it. Because otherwise, you're going to you're just going to be digging yourself a hole. Mm. I, I, you know, I mean, the thing that one of the things that strikes me about rugby union, I think that the the sort of um, there's a very closed shop mentality. Uh, I think among a lot of players, professional players, towards the media, there's distrust. They are some of the media training. I think uh, fosters that distrust rather than eliminates it. So you know, one of the things that I did is just some thoughts. I, I think that the game is too closed 
too secretive, that people um, create sort of little power blocks about holding secrets almost. I think my, you know, the advice that I'd, I'd say to most players is be true to yourself and not try to be something else. You know, be true to yourself. Speak honestly. So, for example, if we go back to one of the flashpoints that, you know, has built real pressure on Owen Farrell, um, it was the, uh, the, the red card that he eventually got for the tackle on Tane Basham. And the RFU, in my view, you talk about, we, we talk about pressure and the way that pressure can be ratcheted up on players. The decision to get a QC or a KC now involved in that, to try to create a, a legal smokescreen that meant that Farrell would get off, kicked off a huge storm because people saw what was straightforward under the laws, current laws of the game, a high tackle that merited a red card. And that's where it should have begun and ended. He should have gone up in front of a disciplinary tribunal. He would have got whatever the ban was, and then that would have been the end of it. But getting a, you know, getting legal counsel involved in something like that is just going to generate more and more. It's going to pour fuel on the fire, and that's what it did. And it went on. I don't, I don't know if you remember. You know, I think it, it went on for three weeks or something like that. Yeah. So there's this stasis as well where. There's more and more conjecture going on. So, and and the the media is duty bound almost to you know to examine this stuff. Um, and it's not it's not necessarily a good look in the end. For you know, it rebounds on Farrell. I mean, you know, he made a mistake in a game of rugby. Should it be the you know the 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 subject of debate for you know and legal discourse and so on and so forth? Not really. No, and this is exactly what Nick said. It's been a, a build-up of probably smaller incidences that have led up to this, you know, because it's it has it. Farrell wasn't protected at all. Like the whole the whole ban thing and then obviously it being reversed. It just even England fans, I mean, even I saw on social, even England fans were like, How did he get away with that? Yeah. But these little incidences are built up and built up and built up, and then he's that's why he's getting the negative stuff. And it's not it's it's not Farrell's fault. He just wasn't protected and it wasn't dealt with in the correct ways. But the end result is he now becomes the target. Yeah. Um, and this is where everyone needs to look at themselves. It's, it's, it's everybody. It's the whole game. You need to protect the player. The player needs to obviously react in a different way as well. Um, but they need to be looked after. That's really interesting. So the, win the window itself for that discussion to happen was too big and too uncertain is kind of what we're saying. Mm. Yeah. 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 Think it's really interesting. Nick's in, Nick was going to say something. His internet has just gone. So I'm going to put a pin in that discussion. Um, it's all very, very interesting. I feel like we could talk about it for another hour or two. Tom, you've got to go at 10.30, right? Yes. Got to head yeah. down to Oxford this game. So yeah, I'm yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're all good. Um, but let's, let's do your random rugby 15. It's actually the first random rugby 15, I think, in about three months. We put four months, maybe. We put it on hold for the World Cup. Um, but are you ready to get going? Yeah, so hold on. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm asking you 15 questions. It's the 50, you know, perfect. the five questions I sent you, yeah? Perfect, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Nickname. Oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, is this X-rated, by the way? Uh, it depends on what you say. <laughs> okay, right. Just We'll go with Dorsey. 
outdoorsy. Okay, I'll definitely be asking you either what... That's the non-X-rated one. That's presumably. the non-X-rated one. I'm, all right, once we start recording, I'm definitely asking you what the X-rated <laughs> one. Uh, Better rugby memory. Uh, winning the Hong Kong Sevens. Nice. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Having my pants pulled down, literally pants pulled down in the Premiership Cup final against Sale. You're not the first person on this podcast to say that. <laughs> uh, pre-game tune. Ooh. Pre-game tune. Kanye West, uh, Black Skinhead. Nice. Great choice. Post-game meal. Oh, Indian takeaway. Best player you've played against? Best player I've played against? Jason Robinson. Nice. Best player you've played with? Ooh. Alessandro Tuolangi. Favourite player right now? Favourite player right now? Arundel. Uh, rugby Idol. Jonah Lomo. Favourite stadium? Ooh. Twickenham. Favourite gym exercise? Bench press. <laughs> First time we've had that, either, believe it or not. Uh, occupation if rugby didn't exist? Um... A teacher. Superstitions. Always put my left boot on first. Nice. Rugby law you would change. Oh. Rug- rugby law. God, there's so there's so many these days. You just don't, <laughs> just don't know. <laughs> uh rugby law I'd change. Probably. I'd actually say the tackle height right now. I think it's got a little bit silly. Yeah. A little bit. As in, is this at amateur level? The the whole below yeah the- below the waist, like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think it's silly. Too much. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby. Oh, your teammates, all the friends you make, unreal. Great stuff. Good. Awesome. That was very quick. I kept. I kept really losing where I was. Your answers were too quick. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned Alice. What were the wingers you mentioned? Alisson, Tuilangi, Joan Lomi, Jason Robert. That would be a hell yeah. of a back three to come up. Against. Oh, that'd be a hell of a back three. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Or Alessandro Tuolangi, Joan with Tom Varndale. Well, probably not as strong, but we'll, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with it. <laughs> no, so same level, same level. Um, right, look, we wanted to talk about Newcastle a little bit. Obviously, that discussion went on for, a qu- for quite a while. Let's do so. It's obviously, it's a two-week break in the Gallagher Premiership now. Um, more than that, I think the next game is December 22nd or something. So yeah. maybe that. Um Newcastle have slipped to their eighth straight defeat in eight games. Um, basically, well, Chris Hewitt wrote an article about it, and it, it is just quite bleak reading if you're a Newcastle fan and also a lover of the Premiership. Obviously, they're a, they were a once great side in the era of Rob Andrew or Johnny Wilkinson, and they are essentially the weak link in the Premiership at the moment. Um, Tom, I'll bring you in first mm. of all. See an adversary of yours for many years. You obviously never played there, but just talk about what your take is from the outside in what's going on there. Obviously, they've got a very young squad. They don't have the money to keep up. The salary cap's potentially increasing. Yeah, what just... Yeah, so I was um, I was commentating on the Leicester-Newcastle game at the weekend, actually, and obviously even going there, Leicester haven't had the best start. I mean, they're, they're, they're hitting some form now going to Europe. But just watching, and I watched them in the Premiership Cup actually at Welford Road back in the, um, the summer, and it is sad watching them because it's actually it's not lack of effort; it's just the fact they just don't have the 
the weapons in terms of the personnel, the squad size to even compete at the moment. Well, compete at all in the Premiership. They're probably in the game for 45, 50 minutes every single week. And then that last sort of 30 minutes, they just completely disintegrate just because they just don't have the the strength and depth that all these other Premiership teams have. And it is worrying because even when you watch them, when you go up to Newcastle and you watch them, the stadium's not full. Um, it's a horrible place to go as a player if you're an away team, but it's just, it's not a great adverse, you know, advertisement for the game itself when you see empty stadiums. It's a Premiership team. And Newcastle have always produced some fantastic players like Johnny Wilkinson, Matthew Tate, Toby Flood. Like, they are really good at their academy system, getting boys through, but then these players leave because obviously they can't afford them. And you need a you need a team in the Premiership up in the north because otherwise it becomes a Midlands and Southern competition, uh, and that the game doesn't grow. So Newcastle need a lot of help to to support and to grow that up there, and they've been struggling for a long time. They're always at the bottom of the league. Like occasionally they they might be a big team, you know, randomly. Um, but other than that, they've always been the whipping boys of the league, and it is it's sad to see. Do you think the microscope is even more obvious given what's happening with Newcastle Football Club, where they're obviously Saudi-owned, having their best premiership season in, I mean, God, God, or not quite anymore, but they had their best start to a premiership season in God knows how long. And you've got it, you know, you say the stadiums are empty. Is that because, is it St. James's Park? Is that Newcastle Football's home stadium or whatever it's called? Come on, Ollie, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm a rugby journalist, okay? Not a, not a football journalist. <laughs> yeah, but Newcastle Falcons have played there before and it's yeah, hosted the Champions Cup right, final, right, so... Fine, 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 fine. All right, well, there goes there goes my positive response. You better cut that bit, Ollie. No, <laughs> uh, it's fine. You've spoken about how we've got to take the positive and the negative. I'll get abuse in the YouTube comments for that and, and I'm okay with that. Um, but... <laughs> It's good well, to have a rugby the focus. distinction is that St. James's Park is full every week, hence the empty seats, you know, watching the Falcons. And, and the thing is, that's the thing, up, up, in, up, in, up in the north, like football is so, so big, so big a sport. And the, the following for, for rugby is probably non-existent. So something has to happen to to lift it up there in some way. I mean, I don't know what it is. I'm not, I'm not the marketing expert up in, up in Newcastle, but something has to happen to make rugby more appealing, whether that's getting to some more schools up there, you know, get down to the grassroots rugby. I don't know how much investment, how much time is put, put into that. Um, but what can't happen is we can't lose another premiership team because that would be absolutely catastrophic. Like to lose the likes of Wasps and Worcester was just horrendous. Then Jersey have now gone as well. London Irish have gone. Like I thought Newcastle would have gone before them. Um, the fact they're still going is, is a miracle, if I'm honest, because it's so clear. They are so behind everybody else now. It's basically a nine-team league with Newcastle just propping up the bottom at the moment. Um, and it does. It is worrying. It is worrying because they don't... It doesn't even look like they're going to get a win from anywhere. Like, Leicester probably would have been a target for them just where Leicester have started the season this year. Um, but they were so far off the pace. I think it was 47-3 in the end. And Leicester didn't even get our third gear. Uh, and it was probably the same story the week before that and the week before that. So... For rugby to be, you know, for it to be entertaining, you want every team competing. And literally at the moment, from number one down to number seven, I think there's only seven points in it. And that's a watchable league. You're like, but when a Newcastle game comes, and you're like, well, that's five points guaranteed for that team. So there needs to be some serious investment in the in the grassroots of in Newcastle and that, that surrounding area. They need to get out to, to more schools, 
to more local clubs to try and build that because that's where it comes from. If you get the grassroots right, it helps the levels above. And I think at the moment they're just focusing on the premiership team and then what's below that, there is nothing. It's it's really interesting. You know, you, you've got um, a team struggling in the way in which Newcastle are. And then you've got a private equity firm with a 27% share, almost a 30% share in the premiership. And I look at the way that the, um, you know, the best players from uh, the three clubs that went bust have been absorbed by various teams uh, within the premiership and have improved them quite significantly as a consequence. And you look at the fact that Newcastle have got none of them. And I would have said that if the premiership was serious about being a serious league, that CVC, as a 30% shareholder, would have put some money into the league in order to get at least three or four of those players into the Newcastle side, maybe a handful. That would have made a difference. Instead, what you've got is a league without promotion and relegation, which is now... Uh, like, you know, watching paint dry in some respects when it comes to, you know, you listen to the TNT broadcasters trying to, you know, jazz it up and rev it up all the time. But it's very difficult to dress up a drubbing like the one that Newcastle got at Leicester and and like they've had all the way through. And it's not just Newcastle. Gloucester are also looking as if they're struggling significantly. So that's a fifth of the league in a you know in a position where when they're going to other teams, you know, fans are going along to watching a a done deal. Now that's not a pro sport. Jeopardy is everything. The idea that you're going to see a result that you already know what the outcome is going to be is absurd. Yeah. And yet this is where we are with the Premiership. I saw an article, a really good article in the Mail where the head, he he used to be the president of of Toulouse. He's now the uh, chairman, I think, of the the top 14. And he said about about the premiership, he said the economic product was prioritized over the sport. He said, in France, we prioritized the sport first and made sure that our product and competition was right. The Premiership has got its product and competition wrong. It should not be ring-fenced. Newcastle are probably a championship side at the moment. There are probably sides in the championship that have the ambition and financial wherewithal, if there was equal funding, to be in the Premiership and to be competitive. It's a broken model and it needs to change because at the moment, all the window dressing in the world isn't going to, and you know, you know, pretty well, I reckon you can, within a couple of weeks or when, when the, when, when the premiership comes back within two or three weeks, we're going to see, be able to see who the top four teams will be as well for the playoffs. It's, it's, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Full stop. I agree with every single point that's been said there. Like in America, they have a draft system. If a team fails or goes into administration, then players then put into the draft and then they're, they're or they're put out to the to the weaker teams. And it works because it grows and every year you don't know who's gonna win because the, the strengths of the team change and and that's the way it should be. And how they've let three teams go bust, it's firstly I can't believe it happened, but then they just allow these players to go to the big clubs again, the Saracens, the 
the Tigers, you know, Bath as well, who are, yeah. you know, Ollie Lawrence has been outstanding, probably one of the best players in the Premiership. Like he, these players should have been put up to Newcastle, grow the game, and they're not doing it at the moment. And it just blows my mind how they just allowed it just to fail like it has. And then the ring fence in the Premiership, Ealing should have been up two years ago. Mm. They say about all these, or oh, they didn't have enough, they didn't have enough, um, the stadium wasn't big enough. It's absolute crap. Who cares? Newcastle don't get 3,000 people at their ground. No. Ealing can do that. Ealing have got the money. Jersey, another one, should have been up in the Premiership. And now they've got 10 teams, well, nine teams, really, that are competing with each other. Who wants to watch that? And it's such a shame because there's some talent, there's some great rugby out there, but the, the numbers are dropping because it, people aren't interested anymore. They're not as interested as they should be. Um, and that needs to change as well. There's so many aspects of the game that are so good, but the crucial things are so bad. And there's no way, they don't seem to seem to be evolving or developing or changing things. They just keep saying the same stuff to the to the press. The same messages are coming out and nothing's happening. Yeah, and I just want to jump in quickly here. I mean, I I think fans will not tolerate in the way, and, and fans have been incredibly forgiving of some of the administrative faults in the game in the last few years. I think there is almost universal... Um, dislike of the fact that Ealing haven't been allowed to go up and to add to that Jersey point I mean if Jersey had been promoted they would still be existing as a club now Um, and London Irish potentially as well because you could have a 12 team league with a little bit of that RFU money going to to keep London Irish alive but um, I don't think CBC money CBC yeah yeah sure sure, absolutely they're they're a billion billion you know billions of pounds private equity firm yeah I, but I mean, just to just to get back to that, I just don't think fans will tolerate. If Newcastle lose eighteen out of eighteen games this year, and you have a brilliant Championship title race that sees Ealing and Doncaster and uh, Pirates or whoever else gets involved, Bedford battling it out, one of those teams has has worked incredibly hard to get to the title, and then are not allowed to play a playoff match against Newcastle because of their ground. I don't think fans will fans will tolerate that anymore, and that's not because I want to see Newcastle kicked in. Because I'm, I think they're being they're they're, they're running their club responsibly and incredibly yeah. bravely, um, given the challenges that they've come up against. And perhaps Irish Worcester and Wasp should have taken on a bit of that kind of thinking of right. Let's just make a massive cutback and see what we can do in terms of you know in terms of our playing squad and everything else that funds the team. But I just don't think fans are going to put up with it for much longer, Um, whether it's an SGM or whether it's just people staying away more and more. I just don't think a team losing 18 out of 18 games is, you know, it it was fine when you had, um, in in 2015, when you had a brilliant Bristol team in the Championship, when London Welsh lost all their games, you had a brilliant Bristol team in the Championship and you had... um, you know, a great title race in the Premiership. People people put up with that and you had 12 brilliant clubs. Um, but people won't put up with it now. No, and I don't want Newcastle to go down. We need a team up there. We need a team in the north to, to yeah, be I agree. I can waving the rugby that, union flag. But you also need an Ealing up there. You need probably a Donny as well. You need to make it a 12, maybe even a 14-team league because 10 teams, nine of which are competing, it just doesn't make it interesting. You also wonder whether having a broader scope for standard, if you have 14 teams, obviously there will probably be more competitive games Newcastle would have. 
yeah. just as obviously, well, the Premier League model in football works very, very well because you've got a relegation battle and obviously that involves a remodelling of it. And Oli, we had it in the Premiership. We well, had, exactly. We no, of course. Of and course, then it, it, got, it, got, it got pulled around by you know, by owners and so on and so forth who were looking to protect their investments. And that's but, where it started to go downhill. But what I'm saying is that now that you do have a 10-team league, all you've got now, if you do introduce promotion and relegation, say you've got those nine competitive teams, mm. you've just got a swapping every yeah. year. And maybe yeah. that's a different team it's coming out of the championship. Yeah, fine, really. but it's, it's, it's not enough. No. What you need mm-hmm. is, like Tom says, another five teams. And all of a sudden, you don't know who's staying up. You don't know who's going down. And and that would mean, obviously, it's not just nine home games the Falcons have that they're all going to lose. It's 13, four of which, or maybe a couple more if they get, you know, obviously, you play competitive games, you get better. Um, you know, four of which, five of which, six of which, they have a real chance of winning. So, yeah. 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 And, you, if, you need... and if you if you go into this hypothetical world where London Irish uh, Wasps and Worcester have all survived as clubs but are running really austere budgets and... Uh, potentially so to get it up to 14 you've got Ealing or Jersey in there also running a low budget but there's a real jeopardy and a fight for relegation and if you do get relegated it's not a disaster it's not the end of your club as we know it Yeah. Um, then Newcastle we, we wouldn't even be having this discussion about Newcastle they'd be doing absolutely fine you know they'd probably picked up a couple of wins already against one of the other teams that would have to be on a cutback budget um, and 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 if they did get relegated, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a, a major problem. But because of the way things have been run in the last eight years, we're you know we're talking about it as if it's the end of the world. Mm. And you need that relegation battle because that makes it more watchable, makes it more entertainment. It keeps fans engaged in the tour, in the in the season the whole way through, rather than once they get in the bottom. Like how engaged are Newcastle fans going to be right now? They've lost every single game. They don't look like they're going to win a game. They don't want to go and watch the boys play. They just don't, they're not interested. You need to have that relegation and that promotion battle to make the season watchable, to keep people entertained throughout the whole year. Otherwise, it's just boring. Couldn't agree more. It's yeah. absolutely, absolutely essential. But, you know, there's been a block on it and there's still a block on it. And, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, Nick mentioned earlier that maybe the only way that it gets shifted is through an SGM because at the moment, uh, it's not going anywhere. It's stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, if you take another 10 team ring fenced, more of an institution, really, the IPL, obviously, the IPL, no one knows who's going to win it any single year, but that's because it's money dependent. And having the ideal model of 10 teams all vying for that number one spot where really, you know, you're micro picking between teams for who's going to take what is completely unrealistic with a game that doesn't obviously doesn't have IPL money. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I a lot of fascinating stuff has been said there, guys, and I agree with a lot of it. M- most fascinating of all was Tom Vandell saying he agreed with everything that Nick Kane said, which I don't think <laughs> anyone, any, anyone has ever said on the Rugby Folk podcast, to be honest. Be careful saying that, Tom. Good yeah. stuff, Tom. <laughs> yeah, <Well done>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't check social media for the next few days. Deleting <laughs> <laughs> all my accounts right now. Okay. <laughs> right guys um tom i know you got to get going pretty soon so we'll leave it there but that was fascinating that was a really really good episode and yeah really appreciate you joining um and good luck with the coaching the return to playing when you're bored of retirement in a year or so yeah and and the cat allergies 
yeah thanks a lot cheers for that awesome no it thanks for guys enjoy the rest thanks of your day thanks, thanks a lot after a dramatic rugby world cup all eyes are now on the guinness six nations Make it a special day with friends, family, teammates, colleagues or clients by booking an exceptional official hospitality experience with our friends at Keith Prowse, principal sales partner to England Rugby Hospitality. Their match day experience in the gate really has to be seen to be believed. So book your experience now and make memories that will last a lifetime. Visit keithprowse.co.uk forward slash the rugby paper now. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.